Have you ever wondered what it might be like to be a publicist to the stars? Hi, this is Candy O'Terry. Welcome to the story behind her success. This episode was recorded on Music Row in Nashville with Pam Lewis, one of the PR queens of country music. What makes her a queen? Well, for starters, she got her start as part of the launch of MTV in the early 1980s. And then she moved to Nashville and helped to shape the careers of superstars like Dolly Parton and Kenny Rogers, the Judds and Alabama. But it was an unknown singer-songwriter from Oklahoma who changed the trajectory of her career. Who was he? Garth Brooks. She's a fearless entrepreneur, a trailblazer, and a powerhouse who says, and I quote, If you want to be successful, start by making your bed and getting up in the morning and keep showing up. If you just keep showing up, good things will happen. We sat down for this chat in her offices on Music Row, where old Craftsman-style homes are now the home of record labels and music publishers, recording studios, and PR firms. I started out by asking Pam where she grew up and what life was like in her house. I grew up in a little town called Red Hook, New York, which is a Dutch community. And my dad was a principal. My mother was a dental hygienist. And everyone else I went to school with either was a farmer or worked at IBM. So it's known as Macintosh country, lots of apple groves, plums, peaches, etc. Really pretty, kind of boring, really safe. I went to a public school, never had a car when I was growing up. And so I would ride my bike into town. I mean, we would like jump in a lake and go swimming. And I went horseback riding on the weekends at my granddad's. And it was pretty idyllic. What was the message in your house about values, what matters, work ethic? My father was one of 11 children, and he had this real kind of Huck Finn life. He was educated. He went to school on the GI Bill, got his master's when we were kids. So it was very much work ethic. It was very much like turn the television off, open a book. My father used to say, the more you have, the more you want. He thought we were incredibly materialistic, my sister and I. It was all about, you have to learn how to delay gratification. I didn't even know what gratification meant. I mean, he was like- you were supposed to delay it. (laughs) He was like, look it up. We had to write thank you notes. And my mother and dad would proof our notes before we sent them out. He was a great rock and tour. I mean, bless his heart, he's passed away now. But he was just really funny. I mean, he was English, Irish, and Welsh. Lewis is a Welsh name. And he was the old guard, you know, he was the greatest generation sort of kind of guy, you know, and wrote a book. And he was very much into preservation, as was my mother, which sort of planted those seeds and very much into volunteerism. And he used to say, you know, you can't be depressed if you're helping someone else. He hated the notion of nursing homes. He said, you need to get out and work. You need to work in the yard. You need to keep moving. And I remember being home for Thanksgiving, Christmas, and I was out raking leaves with him. He was in his 80s. And I was talking to him and I said, Dad, what are you doing? He goes, I'm making up a song in my head. <laughs> so he told me, I'm like, you're making up a song? I said, yeah. He said, you know, I can't sing, but it's a cool song. He was a character. It I, sounds Irish like, Catholic, you know. Yeah, it sounds like your parents had an incredible influence on you. Yeah. My mom lives here now. I'm very excited to have her living here with me. Let's talk about early musical influences. All right, mother would put us down for our naps, my sister and I, and we had one of those uh, record players where she would stack the records. And And they drop. And drop, exactly. And so when I was a little kid, I mean, I'm talking like preschool, I knew every song from Sinatra, 
I knew any all the crooners, Perry Como, Andy Williams, Frank Sinatra was the primo, and my mom would save her money when she'd buy these records, and we weren't allowed to touch them. So I would be like, oh, the witchcraft, that cuckoo-cuckoo witchcraft, and I would sing just like him, and I would perform. So I would sit on this little ledge, and I would sing, fly me to the moon, and da-da-da-da, I mean, or Moon River, I would sing, I would croon. And they would laugh at me. I would kind of perform like, oh, Pam, you want to sing a song? And, you know, so that was what I listened to my parents' music and Sons of the Pioneers. And then I got into weirdo eclectic music. So I loved Cat Stevens. I love Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. I loved the Four Tops when I was really little. I loved Barbara Streisand. I would sing all her songs, knew all the lyrics, funny girl, funny lady, stars born, knew all of that. So it seems like from a very early age, the music was in you. Did you sing in a choir? Did you sing in a group? How did that go? Well, I'm basically lazy. So every instrument I ever was supposed to learn, I I didn't ever want to practice. So I would like not practice the piano. I would not practice the clarinet the way I was supposed to. So henceforth, I never really learned. I can, I can sight read, but I'm a, I've got a good ear and I can sing harmonies. And I was always in choir and performing, being in plays and whatnot. When you went off to college, did you know what you wanted to do? I know you went to Wells College, but you've got a BA in economics, marketing, and a minor in French and communications. Through that. I love the whole notion of advertising. If I could have gotten a killer job in advertising and then be able to write an ad that could then get on television, I would have thought that I had died and gone to heaven. So the whole notion of a music business degree, that really wasn't in the cards. I was talented, but I wasn't like the best singer, the best. I was a great kind of utilitarian person. And I wasn't knocked at gorgeous. So, you know, for me to be a performer, it didn't make sense. But my mom said to me, you got to study something that lets people know you're smart. You can't major, major in English, Pam. We're not paying this kind of money for you to major in English. That was literally a quote. So I was really good in any of the social sciences, you know, sociology, psychology, math. I hated, I needed to be tutored in math, high school, college, calculus, <laughs> you hated and me, it, sister. <laughs> hated it. But econ was a degree that I could get where people would be like, well, she must be pretty smart because she's an econ. So then I audited every English class I had time for. My mom was like, if you wanted to study English, just audit it. Take the classes and audit it. And I also wanted to live in France. And so that's why I took seven years of French and lived in France for almost a year. Let's talk a little bit about that, because I think that when you're that age and you get a chance to go to Europe and see the world outside of the United States, it's a huge eye-opening experience. Absolutely. What was it like for you to go to Europe? Well, I was really blessed by parents who would let go. I'm a homebody. I'm a nester. I'm a nurturer, but I love to travel. So you really so much about the world, though, right? I think it's part of the problem with America. We don't travel enough. And we're, we're very uh, lucky that we're sort of this big monstrosity. And we're, we're, we border Canada and Mexico, but we don't have to learn other languages. We don't have to learn other cultures. Whereas if you live in Europe, it's very common. Countries are the size of our states, and some of them even smaller. So I just think that it's extremely important to travel. There's a whole world out there. Well, you go to New York City as a New York girl. You end up in the big city. Loved it. Your early career there, unbelievable. You're working in publicity and marketing, 1980 to 1984, 
you're launching or part of the launch of MTV with Warner Amex Satellite Entertainment Company. What was that like? Talk about an exciting time in pop music, Mm. in media in general. Actually, cable television was really burgeoning then. And uh, Warner Communication had made a lot of money with the Atari game. American Express had made a lot of money with credit cards. They were flush with cash. And so this was sort of a way to stash some money, basically, and to start this new network concept. So we had the Arts and Entertainment Network, which was sort of what Bravo became. We had the Movie Channel, which was the world's first 24-hour movie channel. And we did something called Revolutionary at the time, Interstitial Programming. And what that was was interviews, programming in between films. So it would be an interview with Francis Ford Coppola or an actress or actor. Ted Turner partnered with us. So he would come in the office. John Belushi would come in the office. And I'm like this little kid, you know. It just was like, uh, if I don't talk too much and I try to make myself scarce, maybe they won't ask me to leave. The boss was John Schneider. John Schneider had been the big muckety-muck at CBS. And when he retired at CBS, he came and he was my boss, John Schneider, and then John Lack. This is like being thrown into the big leagues. Totally crazy. It's hard to believe, but when MTV launched, it launched in the hinterland, in the heartland. It was not in the major markets that we needed to be in. And we needed videos. So the two major markets are LA and New York for the music business. We weren't in LA and New York. We needed Madison Avenue to produce advertising to think that it was worthy of advertising. So part of my job was to get air checks and get reviewers to come in my office and watch MTV and explain it because you couldn't see it. So some of the people that might be listening might remember the campaign, I want my MTV. I want my MTV. That is basically a ripoff from I want my Mapo. Remember the I want my Mapo cereal? The cereal. I want my Mapo. So we thought, well, if we can get Peter Townsend or Robert Plant or Paul Simon to say I want my MTV or Billy Joel maybe the cable networks will listen. And what started to happen is the record labels and the radio stations, they started getting requests. And they're like, well, how are people hearing men at work and flock of seagulls? It wasn't because they had records out necessarily. It's because people in Idaho were seeing the videos. And that's really how it happened. Now, that's hard to believe because it's so ubiquitous now. But back then, it was all very new. It was fledgling. So I always say I was sort of in on a uh, phenomena at the Absolutely. time. Absolutely. And you know, the other thing that occurs to me as I listen to you tell that story is that our careers come in chapters. Mm. And in that chapter, you got thrown into the deep end of the pool. Totally. And very often, I'm guessing you probably were even afraid to ask a question because you didn't want to look like you didn't know the answer. But if you can be a sponge in a situation like that and just take it all in, there must have been so much learning from that that you've taken for the whole rest of your career. I was making $11,000 a year. I was living in a studio apartment on the Upper East Side. And I would try to work late. It wasn't difficult because there was always stuff to do so that I could take a cab home. They would let you, if you worked after seven o'clock, you could take XYZ cab home for free that you could put it on an account. We had an account with them and I could make a little bit of extra overtime so that I could make ends meet. I think I was paying $400 a month, which was, it should have been a million dollars. Like it was so elusive to even think of 400 bucks a month. But the good thing was I got invited to parties. So I could eat, you know, I could eat and drink and go to parties and because of the, the connection with the music industry. You were promoted to national media director and you're sent to Nashville. 
not promoted. Here's what happened. I was asked to interview for a job at RCA. So I had worked for four years for Warner Amex and I had kind of plateaued. So there was no place for me to move within PR and marketing. And I wasn't getting paid a whole lot. So when I got an offer to come to Nashville to interview for a job, I did not want to come to Nashville. I had visited Nashville with my family to see the World's Fair, which was kind of fun. And it kind of reminded me of upstate New York with rolling hills and it's a very pretty area, but I didn't want to live here. I was like too cool for school. I'm living in New York. You know, why would I'm working at MTV? I don't want to move in Nashville. So long story short, I called in sick. RCA sent me a ticket. I took a cab to the airport and I was just going to be there for the day and come right back. I bought a billboard on the way to the airport and I'm like, well, somewhere in the billboard, there's got to be a country section. I've never even knew where it, where it was, but I knew they had a country chart somewhere and I started leaving through it. And I think islands in the stream was like on top or close, close to it. And I said, oh, congratulations on Kenny and Dolly and islands in the stream. I had no notion I really didn't understand how publishing wrote. So I thought, well, Kenny and Dolly must have written this song. Like, I didn't know the whole idea about songwriters and publishing share. I didn't understand any of that. And I think, quite frankly, because I didn't want the job, they offered it to me because I was really confident. You weren't standing there going, please hire me. Please Not hire at all. me. Not at all. And Joe Galante, bless his heart, was from New York. So I think he saw sort of kindred spirit in me and hence the job offer. So I was madly in love with this guy and I thought, oh God, and I had to leave my family, my sister, my mom and dad. And I, I thought, well, I tried to talk him into, can't I just stay in New York? Like all the media is in New York or LA and I'll just fly to Nashville once a month. And they're like, no, the job is here. Can you imagine how ballsy it is to ask that of a major label? <laughs> so I did. And that's how dumb I was. So they moved me here. They gave me an expense account. Well, I thought I had died and gone to heaven. They gave me an automobile to drive, which, by the way, I had my driver's license, but I never drove. I literally had no car in college, no car in high school, moved straight to New York. So even though I had a license, I hadn't driven in years. Here comes Pam Lewis down the road in Nashville. I was mortified. I was <laughs> mortified. I'm like, okay. Put on your big girl panties. You've lived in New York for years. You can do Nashville. You start working with Dolly Parton, Kenny Rogers, Alabama. the Judds, Alabama. Bill Medley. Bill Medley, yeah. as in Bill Medley and Jennifer Warren's one of my favorite songs. Yeah, I've had the a time Brothers. of my life. Righteous Brothers. Yeah, unbelievable. Any stories about working with these superstars? I'll give you a Dolly story. Reinstein was a film that she did that was filmed in Leaper's Fork with Sylvester Stallone. Now, Dolly obviously was always quite buxom, but she was a little more curvaceous and had a little bit more of a booty back then. And we were shooting a video. And back then, you were not supposed to get in photographs with artists. I mean, there was no concept of selfies or anything like that. Right. It was like, that would be acting very gurmy, if you will. And so you act, had to act very professional. So I was acting as professional as I could be, even though I'm standing next to Dolly Parton, for God's sakes. <laughs> so she standing there and she looks over her right shoulder and this camera is kind of panning behind her and she says y'all better use a wide angle lens <laughs> and i was like i love it she's very self-deprecating but yeah you know those are exciting acts though, oh my gosh to be a part of i yeah. mean you know we've had the honor of of interviewing naomi judd and we know her story about took them to new york signed. for the first time tell me about that okay this is very bittersweet um naomi has really beautiful skin. And I remember she had a, a scoop neck 
outfit on. And I thought, oh, my God, her skin is so translucent, you know. And she was ill. We didn't realize. I knew she was fatigued, you see. And I thought, well, we have to be sure that if we go out to, de- to eat, that she gets to bed early. And, of course, her daughter was, like, raring to go. Let's go, right? But we had to take care of mom. And they wanted to go to Windows on the World, which, of course, was the Twin Towers. So I took them there for dinner. And Vince Gill, I love, he was one of my favorites and such a good, such a charming man, such a good charming. I will tell you a funny Vince Gill story. So I was really disbelieved in him, loved Pure Prairie League. So long story short, he, I loved him. Uh, Eddie Raven was on the label then. I loved Eddie. I was trying to get Rolling Stone to review an album that Vince put out called The Things That Matter. And I sent that project to Rolling Stone and of course, Rolling Stone to get a gazillion things and so I get buzzed by my secretary, which was, I'm like pinching myself. I have a secretary. Are you kidding me? So Erin buzzes me. She says, you're not going to believe this. I said, who's on the phone? She said, Rolling Stone. I'm like, shut the door. Are you kidding me? So I get on the phone with Rolling Stone and they're like, hey, we finally got a chance to open the things that matter, the, the a project from Vince Gill. And we're doing a roundup story about artists who have moved from one genre of music to another genre of music. And we would like to include Vince. I'm like, oh, great. And I'm like talking like a blue streak. And he's an amazing guitar player. He's amazing. Blah, 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 blah. From Oklahoma, blah, 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 blah. So the next thing that happens with the guy on the phone says, well, you know, we're very political. We'd like to think of ourselves as a political cutting edge magazine. And not only do we talk about music, we talk about lifestyle and what's going on. And so just want to upfront tell you that one of the things we're going to talk to Vince about is his alleged homosexuality. And I about dropped the phone. I'm like, ah, oh, um, well, he's happily married and he's got a little girl and her name is Jennifer. And I, I don't, I don't think you have your facts right. I mean, I'm, I'm like, I'm, what am I doing here? I'm like, whatever. And all of a sudden, now I'm on the phone for probably 20 minutes, right? I hear this laugh and it's Vince. He, yes. what do they call that? He punked you. He totally did. And I'm like, you, I'm going to kill you. You know what he said? Because you really believe in me. I said, I did. I said, you stuff. <laughs> and so to this day, if I see him, I'm like, hey, you've been in Rolling Stone lately? I mean, that was how many years ago? So he has a wonderful sense of humor. So yeah. let's go to 1985. You make a huge move entering oh. into your entrepreneurial stage as in Pam Lewis and Associates. Oh, because I got fired. <laughs> it's pretty scary any way you look at it because you really are jumping off the cliff as an entrepreneur. In your opinion, what does it take to be a successful entrepreneur? I was one of about seven people fired that year. It was just a turbulent time. And I had like a me too thing happen to me, which I didn't even think of it as me too. I didn't think, well, maybe that was part of the reason I got fired until me too happened. That's how dense it was for real. I think what it takes is tenacity. I think you have to really want it and you have to be a self-starter. So for me, it took an IBM Selectric typewriter. <laughs> this is what I lived on. And I just uh, circle back Tony Brown, who was still friendly to me. Now, we weren't like hanging out all the time. Right, he was a big Tony. executive at RCA. Yeah, yeah, he was Tony Brown and I was Pam Lewis. But this time he had gone to MCA. So he remembered me and he had Steve Earle and Steve Earle needed some PR. So he hired me to do, he said, you can do this. And he hired me to work with Steve Earle and he hired me to work with Lyle Lovett and Nicolette Larson had a project and then they had the master series. And so I was making like $500 a month or something per project. I mean, not a ton of money, but added up, I could pay my rent. Isn't it so fascinating though, too? And I've, I've been learning this, the more interviews we do here in Nashville, 
Relationships are everything. Mm. This is a community. Truly. I'll tell you what I learned also really early. I partied. I mean, I worked at MTV for bloody sake. You know, we had fun for real. In the 80s, we had fun. But when I moved to Nashville, I was like, you know what? It is a small town. There's only these few streets. Everybody knows what you do and they will talk. And being a woman, you have to work that much harder. You can't be running around like a maniac. You can't be doing drugs and alcohol. And everybody has stories about how, you know, you slept with this person, you did that, the other, whatever. So I kept my nose clean. I mean, I just realized that early on. And I think that's so true now with social media. And and I, you know, we've had people that have applied and you go on their social media. I'm like, we can't hire them. We just can't. It follows you. It's like styrofoam. It never goes away. In the door walks this guy named Garth Brooks. I get a phone call from a guy named Bob Doyle. I don't know who Bob Doyle is. Bob Doyle works at ASCAP. We go out to lunch. Bob calls me again. We go out to lunch. Bob calls me again. We go out to lunch. And I'm like, is he hitting on me? I mean, why is he taking me to lunch? He had an expense account. I have no idea. Finally, after all this, I think he was feeling me out a little bit. I'm leaving ASCAP. I've met this boy. I've been trying to get him a publishing deal. No one will give him a publishing deal, but I believe in him. And I'm going to start a management company and I need a partner. Would you be interested? So the boy turned out to be not a boy. He was younger than, a little bit younger than I am. It was Garth Brooks. So I remember going into Bob's office and here's Garth and he's sitting and he had his, uh, he had an Alaskan Malamute dog laying at his feet. And he's like, hey, ma'am. I'm like, don't ma'am me. We're like the same age. Hello. <laughs> and he was just very polite. And he starts playing songs. And I, there was something about him that I thought was really captivating. He had really cool eyes, blue eyes and everything. So I'm like, okay, maxed out all my credit cards. <laughs> and, you know, and Bob and I started working together and we formed Doyle Lewis Management. And that was like about, I don't guess, seven, eight year run. Got him his record deal, got Trisha her record deal, worked with a great group of guys called Great Plains, worked with Hank Flamingo, worked with Buddy Monlock, a folk artist, did some cool things. And uh, of course, most notably, Trisha and Garth. In your opinion, what are the key ingredients for a great publicity or marketing person? Personal service, getting back to people. One of the things I realized working at MTV is I work hard and I'm honest and I'll learn the rest. So I think... If you can have the wherewithal to do that and ask questions, don't lie. Don't lie. Be straight with people and give people good value. I want people when they come to work with us, I want them to say, you know what? I got more than I paid for. They generally come back to us or they stay with us a long time or they refer other people. So to me, that's that's all you have is your word. That's all you have is your integrity. Last couple questions. Sure. We ask everyone who sits where you are. When an obstacle is in your path, how do you get around it? As I get older, I pick my battles. And sometimes there's an obstacle because God wants it there, for lack of a better word. God, Allah, Buddha, whoever. And maybe it's better to take another path. So I look at the obstacle. A, how big is it? B, how bad do I really want to get to the other side? C, is there maybe another path? Is there another goal that is even more important? What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? And can you pass that along? My mother uh, told me this one time, and she actually then had it calligraphied and it's hanging in my kitchen. Love many, trust few, and always paddle your own canoe. From where you sit, Pam Lewis, what does success mean to you? 
To me, good health is the most important thing. Having people that respect me, hopefully, or don't hate my guts, and uh, I just have a great, really good team around me. I don't take it for granted, any of this for granted. That's Nashville PR queen, Pam Lewis. Check out her website, PLA Media. Well, her story about achieving success as a publicist and a manager in country music is pretty stunning, right? If you know someone that I should feature on this series, please let me know about her. Just go to my website, candyoterry.com. Shoot me an email anytime. The story behind her success is a labor of love for me. And I am grateful to every woman who shares her story on this show. Never underestimate the power of a great story. I'll have a fresh new story to inspire you next week. And until then, this is Candy O'Terry saying thank you so much for listening to the story behind her success.